Lucha-Masks.com by Pro Wrestling Revolution. Bringing you, in partnership with Masked Republic, the Lucha Brothers, as well as Japanese legend Ultimo Dragon. Go to Lucha-Masks.com and fight Lucha Strong with masks from your favorite Lucha legends and Pro Wrestling Revolution luchadores. Stay safe in style and represent your favorite luchador. Get yours now at lucha-masks.com, powered by Pro Wrestling Revolution. You are listening to the Lucha Central Podcast Network. And now, luchacentral.com presents The Business of the Business. everyone welcome back to the business of the business this is kevin kleinrock thanking you for joining me again on the only podcast dedicated to examining how your favorite officially licensed merchandise gets made with a special look particularly at the professional wrestling and lucha libre industries this week i'm very excited to have a real trailblazer on the show. You know, the professional wrestling merchandise business has gone through a few different kind of major changes over the years. And we'll talk about some of the other changes on later episodes. Um, for example, back in the day, if you were a bad guy or a rudo in Lucha Libre, a rule breaker or a heel in traditional pro wrestling, you didn't have merchandise. You know, people were going to the shows to buy Hulk Hogan, or before him, even uh, you know other baby faces or the good guys apparel, and the merchandise was all based on those good guys. And then there was a movement, uh, pretty much in the 1990s, where we started to see merchandise for bad guys, and that really changed a lot, uh, not just for the fans, but for the pocketbooks of the wrestlers. Because if you were a rule breaker back in the day, you weren't getting that merchandise money. You weren't um, getting those bonuses that the baby faces were getting. And so that really, really changed things up. Um, but the other area that has really gone through a lot of change, especially in the last decade, is that of the independent professional wrestler. A professional wrestler that is not under an exclusive contract with, with WWE or maybe back in the day uh, WCW. Somebody who either wrestles for a, a smaller organization and kind of maintains some of their own rights as well. Or someone that has no contract whatsoever and travels the country or travels the world um, as an independent contractor, a truly independent contractor, and wrestles and sells their own IP. And normally that IP is sold face-to-face -to, -face to the consumer at the merchandise table, whether it's before an event or after an event. Um, but over the last 20 years, I guess, uh, that started to change and evolve as the internet became a thing. And my guest today, Colt Cabana, is a fairly well-known, if you are a wrestling fan, a wrestler and a comedian. And... Colt has been on the forefront of many of these kinds of 
changes in how to merchandise and monetize and bring fans officially licensed products. Um, he, as you'll hear, was one of the first, if not really the first of the modern era, to build a website where fans could buy his merchandise. Uh, he was one of the first to really offer more than just a t-shirt or a t-shirt and an 8x10 or only an 8x10 or whatever uh, at their merchandise table at live events. He has created some other interesting ways to market and promote his products. And then in 2013, Colt and a gentleman by the name of Ryan Barkin who owned a company called One Hour Tees in Chicago, where Colt would get his own personal merchandise made, they decided to form a company called Pro Wrestling Tees. And what followed would be easily the most disruptive merchandising company for professional wrestling in the last decade, easily the most disruptive and beneficial in the history of independent pro wrestling, and arguably the most disruptive for wrestling merchandise on any level in the history of the entire business. And we'll get into that a little bit more on the show. But in the last seven years, the company has now built to where there are more than 1,500 pro wrestlers now selling through their site. We're talking from the biggest names in the business, like Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, the estate of Roddy Piper and Andre the Giant, Shawn Michaels, and Hulk Hogan, to the Colt Cabanas and others of the world who have really been able to turn this into a way to become full-time professional wrestlers with their wrestling booking money plus their merchandise money. And Pro Wrestling Tees at this point has paid out more than $6 million in royalties. They've parlayed this into getting merchandise into actual retail like Hot Topic, and Spencer's Gifts, and we'll talk with Colt not so much about PWTs, but about his journey, his philosophies, and his look at being an independent creator, an independent wrestler, an independent comedian, and how he monetizes through officially licensed merchandise. So with that, enjoy my talk with pro wrestler, comedian, and merchandising innovator, Colt Cabana. With me now is pro wrestler, comedian, actor, podcast innovator for pro wrestling, merchandise innovator for pro wrestling, Colt Cabana. Colt, how are you doing today? I'm good, Kev. How are you, bud? I am. I am doing good. I am doing well. Um, I, I want to thank you for coming on. You know, when I when I started this podcast, my goal was to create something. This, I'm talking to the guy who pretty much invented the modern wrestling podcast. I, I think that for those, I think half the people listening, more than half the people listening who are from the wrestling world, obviously know that. But I'm hoping that there are some people listening to this from outside of the wrestling world, from the marketing world, from the merchandising world. And, you know, while wrestling radio shows existed all the way back to the 90s, um, when it came to the modern kind of version of podcasting, uh, Colt was really the first, I think. Is that is that fair to say, Colt? Yeah, I was the first uh, 
I was the first person inside the actual industry who was actually a part of wrestling on a big scene, doing a weekly show, talking to other people within the industry. So, uh, of course, there were people that were outside of wrestling that were journalists or just whatever, weren't in the act of professional wrestling um, like I was. And as I did it and started in 2010, you know, I was on the road 200 days a year being an active professional wrestler. So before that, that, that wasn't really a thing. Um, and then, yeah, and then I started my journey. Yeah. And, you know, now, and I guess, you know, I've contributed to the problem launching our podcast network, but they, I got to a point where there was just, I used to listen to your show weekly. And I think, you know, over time, um, there got to be so many shows that got added and so many different, um, Everybody had a show. Everybody had, a, and a lot of them were the same. And that was a problem, I think, in terms of the gluttony of shows. But yours remained different. And even when you kind of had done it all, then you kind of switched up the format a little bit and brought a different version of the show. And then even more recently, you've kind of switched up how you're presenting it again and have kind of always managed to kind of, I guess, kind of keep it fresh. And I don't, do you even know how many episodes are you, you've, past a thousand episodes i'm sure totally right no no because i do one a week um you know i did one a week for eight years um you know which ended up being about a little over 400 and then i did another two basically a year and a half or two years of uh, that documentary style and now i'm back so it's it's probably around 500 or something like that so um you know remember that's you know once a week 52 weeks a, a year for for 10 yeah. years now almost a lot. Ten, 10 years is a long, long time. Um, but so, yeah, so <laughs> I, I thank you for coming on my, my fledgling podcast, episode two. Um, sure. Like, uh, you know, like I was saying, I, I, when I wanted to do a podcast about merchandising and how people's officially licensed merchandise gets made, oh. how fans get the merchandise of the wrestlers that they want. I knew that I wanted to have you on one of the early episodes because much like the podcast game where you were kind of always thinking a step ahead, you again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like, you know, at a time where most people for their merchandise at the intermission of a show were selling t-shirts and eight by tens, you were really one of the first people to go, what else can I be doing? What, what more can I do? That's not the same stuff that everybody has. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, it is fair to say, but also, you know, what's also fair to say is there was a point where people weren't even selling t-shirts and eight by tens and they weren't looking at the merchandise table as uh, an important part of their business uh, as professional wrestlers. And I, you know, there's a lot of varying thoughts on all of this as, you know, should you be out on the merchandise table? Like, you know, should these wrestlers who only have two weeks in wrestling or, or even six months in wrestling, should, should they be at the merchandise tables slinging merchandise? I don't think so. I think there really is something to learning your craft uh, before you learn how to do your marketing craft uh, because otherwise you're just marketing garbage. Um, yeah. But, you know, there, there was a point in the independent wrestling scene where, where, where the merch table really wasn't taken over by the wrestlers like you see now. Uh, there was a point where it was maybe just myself and Chris Hero and maybe, you know, M-Dog, Matt Cross. Uh, and now, well, not now because of the state of the world, but uh, before this, you know, it, it was at a point where if there was 25 wrestlers at the, uh, on the show, there was 24 wrestlers lined up at, uh, at um, you know, at, at intermission. And it's almost become a, a, 
a joke of itself at this point. But, um, you know, at one point it wasn't like that. So, so yes, there was a point where um, no one was doing T-shirts and 8x10s and I was doing T-shirts and 8x10s. And then there got to a point where my popularity and everything kind of started to grow. And I did realize that there's, you know, there's only – there's, there's only so much that people want t-shirts and eight by tens. And I, and I'm sure this is going to lead to a lot of bunch of other stuff, but um, I all, I all, I always thought to myself, like, what would I want if I was a customer? And that's kind of how I've based my whole career in terms of my wrestling style, in terms of my podcast, in terms of my comedy um, and in terms of my marketing, I, I'm saying if I was a fan at a wrestling show, what would I want? It's, and you know what I go and I don't, you know, I go to rock shows or I go to uh, comedy shows and I don't want a t-shirt and I don't want an eight by 10, but I know I want to support. So a lot of that comes from, uh, by looking into the minds of the fan. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, for, for where we sit in master public, I mean, that was really one of the things behind us really moving into the merchandising game. I mean, we, when we started what we do 10 years ago, um, we did start with, basically two things, Lucha masks and t-shirts. And it was, for us, it was how do we help the wrestlers in Mexico sell officially merchandise, uh, officially licensed merchandise in the U.S. because one, in Lucha, most things are bootleg. Uh, and two, there was no easy way for, for fans here to get that stuff. But eventually, it, it became after a while, what else could we do that wasn't a t-shirt and a Lucha mask? And what were their opportunities in that, outside of WWE, people weren't getting an opportunity to do, whether it was, you know, trading cards or action figures or a calendar, whatever the case may be. Um, so when you kind of made that pivot from just the t-shirts and 8x10, so to speak, what were some of those items that you were first doing that people really seemed to react to? Or what were some that you thought were going to be hits that nobody actually wanted to buy? No, uh, I mean, well, there's first of all, there's so many levels and layers to to my answer on that. I mean, uh, you got to understand my story a little bit. I, you know, I yeah. started wrestling in, in 1999 and then in 2003, I started wrestling full time and I, and I probably made, you know, $7,000 a year. So I, and I was living in an apartment, you know, downtown Chicago, not necessarily like downtown, like the good part, but like, you know, with a roommate in Chicago, like not on my parents' couch or anything. And I was, trying to make a living. I was trying to make a go as a full-time wrestler. So it got to the point where I realized I need to make X amount during my wrestling and I need to make X amount on merch. And I need to do that six shows a month at the minimum. And I set myself with a price point and I said, you know, I need, I need whatever it was, $75 to wrestle 75 in merch or a hundred to wrestle 50 in merch every show. So it really, it became about living and surviving at that point in my career. And at that point, you know, I was about four or five years into wrestling. I was doing pretty good. So, um, it, it came where I, I had to move merch. And so, yes, there was a point in 2003 where I sold Cole Cabana t-shirts. Uh, I sold Cole Cabana 8x10s. Um, I, I would also go to Sam's Club or uh, Costco and I would get VHS tapes. And then I had a friend at Blockbuster Video who gave me the free cases. Uh, and then, you know, I had a, a friend at Staples who would hook me up with uh, color printing to print out my um my covers. And so there's a lot of different ways of trying to, you know, get, get the hookups and keep my costs low. So it could be pure profit. But also uh, at that point, you know, I did, you know, illegally, I guess, uh, you know, find, I don't know if it's illegal. I don't know what the word is, but, you know, find a hookup of a guy in Mexico who'd send me masks for $2 and I would mm -hmm. push them, you know, move them for 10 
or uh you know i would i don't know i would sell you know bootleg macho man uh randy savage cds for two dollars that i would make um you know i was using the merch table as basically a, a flea market at that point to try to make extra money in order to live and i think that we've seen people kind of do that here or there since then but again i guess i go back to you know, I, at least on the general independent scene, I would say you were kind of really amongst the the first to do that. And I think people, people started to notice. Um, so I, I don't want to jump too far ahead because obviously the, the pro wrestling tees uh, business that you were very responsible for making a thing um, really changed the business, but I want to, I don't want to get too far ahead and, and kind of go back to when you were on your first run of ring of honor. What was the official ring of honor merchandise like? And if they were doing a Colt Cabana t-shirt, how involved were you in that? If at all, or were they just making a shirt and saying, here's your new shirt we're selling. You're going to get 10% or whatever the, the case might've been. Well, okay. It's I, I can't necessarily remember. I remember on my, when I came back to ring of honor after I was in WWE, but before ring of honor, I don't think they necessarily sold merchandise of any of us at that point. They were only selling their own merchandise. Um, but I was going to say is uh, very early in my ring of honor career. Uh, you know, the, the first couple shows I was selling merch and very quickly, a couple of us were doing it. And the people that ran ring of honor, put a, put a, put an end to that said, absolutely not. You can't do that. And at that point it wasn't a fight I was willing to fight. Um, and then what happened is those Ring of Honor guardrails, which are notorious um, for making those uh, banging sounds, but also for slicing up so many of the wrestlers because they were so unsafe. Uh, one night in Boston, Massachusetts, I got thrown over the guardrail and it, it basically cut my whole bicep open. And what happened was, you know, I was I had to go to the emergency room. I had to get stitched up and it was a big bill. Um, and basically I went to the Ring of Honor brass and I said, hey you need to pay for this. You, this is unsafe working conditions. Uh, you know, there, I wouldn't have have to done this if, the, if this wasn't for these gross guardrails. And you know, these are all for guardrails. And I knew that they did not want to pay for it. So obviously my backup plan and my whole plan in general was, um, I said, or before they even said no, or you let me sell merchandise until I make up uh, my bill. And obviously that was nothing out of theirs. So I now had an open spot at the Ring of Honor table to sell my merchandise until I quote unquote made up my bill. But obviously, you know, I just did it for the next two years. So um, that was my way of sneaking out. That was my way of selling merch at Ring of Honor uh, because I because they weren't really doing any for us. So and also I think they knew not to really make anything for me because um, because I, I they knew me as the merchandise guy and I was kind of moving my own stuff as it was. Makes sense. That makes sense. And then obviously wrestling society was so short lived that yes, we did a single t-shirt that we didn't really ever have a place to sell. And, uh, we, we did it for the, for the Matt classic character. Um, and I think maybe, I don't even know if we ever sold any on a website, but we had it and it was a thing. Um, and from there you, I guess, well, and even taking a step back though, I mean, when, when I pitched wrestling society X to MTV, I had these, and I think others, and I think I remember hearing you in an interview talk about it. You know, there were, there were certainly what were at the time, I guess, uh, delusions of grandeur. Because when I pitched the whole concept to MTV, it was, listen, 
you guys have supported pro wrestling forever. You've put over WWE for decades, but you've never made any money off of it other than your TV commercial. So why don't we start this league together? Why don't you merchandise a league? You know, you, you can't do a national tour with the Hills and you're not going to make action figures out of the jackass guys, but you could do that with your own wrestling league. Um, and unfortunately we just weren't around long enough to, to get that to happen. But uh, so well, let me at, stop you on there. Let me yeah. stop you on there. I don't know why they never did action figures with the jackass guys. Cause that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> Yes, you, you well, you would you would think that something could have happened there, but uh, yeah, uh, they probably I mean they could have sold they could have sold them, but um, you know that I mean look another podcast for another time, but that process one of the biggest lessons for me was you can't pitch a business plan to a television executive, you need to pitch the business plan to the business executives above the television executives because what I went in there and pitched is the current day Bellator model of Viacom owns a piece of the promotion. They own a piece of the touring. They own a piece of the everything and they promote the hell out of them. Um, but we were just pitching to the TV side and all they cared about was TV ratings. And so I've learned and uh, you know, hmm. next time around, it'll be, it'll be a little different. But uh, after wrestling society, you went to WWE and uh, you know, not to get too much into the run itself there, but I know for sure that I recall seeing a Scotty Goldman t-shirt. Um, no. Was, what? No, there was no, there was no Scotty Goldman t-shirts. Dude, I was, I literally had five matches. Uh, maybe it was just I the mean, logo on your, on your, tri, on your, your chest that I'm remembering. I mean, there was a, I was in a top, I was in um like a pog game. They had poker chips that were only available in Europe. And that was the only Scotty Goldman thing available. Uh, well, I guess uh, then we won't be able to get into too much about your merchandise process with WWE. Uh, yeah, but you know, um, yeah, there wasn't any. Uh, you know, uh, I got even after I got fired. The only residuals I got was for being something for with Great Khali, and um, I think they put out a DVD of the Great Khali, and then I moved. And I, I'm pretty sure there probably is some residual checks, but I never received any of those. Um, and that's the only that's the only post money I've ever made. I didn't even get residual checks for that pog, which I know technically they have to give me something for it. But yeah. I, I I also think there was at a time because I was on this FCW contract, so I don't even know if they had to. So which is why I found it weird that they paid me for the Great Cali DVD because I, I felt it was either one or the other, either you pay me for the the poker chip and the the DVD or you pay me for nothing if that's what my contract states. I mean, it's nothing, it wasn't anything that I thought I would fight over. So I just kind of let it go. I mean, towards the end, I was getting a $2.36 check from WWE or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know too, just from some of the, um, some of the contracts that I've looked over from WWE and, understanding the royal some of the royalty statements that i've looked over those are very very detailed convoluted royalty statements that do get down to especially on those multi-performer deals um you know i was looking at a what i would call an a-level superstars royalty report trying to help him make sense of it and you know when it came down to it even for him it was you know pennies here pennies there because it was 
you know, 10% of 10% of 10% and then split amongst, you know, 27 guys or 47 guys or whatever. And so it's certainly, but I, I mean, that's, I guess that's kind of the trade-off in some respects when you're working for a larger company. Um, and if you're there long enough, then hopefully all those smaller bits add up to something significant. It's really, you know, it's the same when we're trying to explain a retail opportunity to a wrestler um, that is used to selling direct to the consumer only at a live event, paying $4 to make a t-shirt and selling it for $20. And then we say, Hey, we have an opportunity to get your t-shirt into Walmart. You're going to get 37 cents a t-shirt. And they're like, what? Uh, and it's, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it's a real question of whether that, that is worth it or not. Um, you know, what, I guess, you know, you alluded to a little bit before, and I know we talked off air a little bit about some of your kind of overall, just kind of the way you look at the merchandise business, even now, obviously you've, you've I'm sure changed some philosophies over the last couple of decades, but when you're looking at merchandising for yourself and opportunities for yourself, um, kind of walk me through a little bit of what you're considering and what opportunities you're looking at, because I'm sure you get approached. Uh, about a number of pieces, and we'll, we'll jump into AEW a little bit later. But um, there's a lot of opportunities that have been out there for for uh, independent, top independent names. Whether it's an action figure with uh, Figures Toy Company, or whether it's uh, being part of a video game, like I believe you're going to be part of coming up. So, how do you kind of look at these different opportunities? And we'll be back with Colt Cabana in just a few moments to answer that question and many more. But right now, I want to send it over to Denise Salcedo to tell you about all the other great podcasts coming this week to the Lucha Central Podcast Network. Hey everyone, it's Denise Salcedo here in Lucha Central Central with a look at all of the great shows available this week on the Lucha Central Podcast Network. Monday, it's the return of the Business of the Business podcast and Mass Republic President Kevin Kleinrock sits down with groundbreaking wrestler and merch game changer Colt Cabana to talk about how he's consistently reinventing his own merchandising game helping found the number one disruptor in pro wrestling merch history, pro wrestling tees, and much more. Tuesday, it's Mass, Mats, and Mayhem, the show that brings you back into and behind the scenes of Lucha Underground. This week, the show tackles the epic season one ladder match and more. Also, on Tuesday, Wrestle Boss with Fabi Chulo, live, covering pro wrestling and MMA from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific. This week's guests include Brujeria bassist and wrestling commentator Pat Poet, a.k.a. Larry Rivera, and UFC fighter Gustavo Lopez. Head to LuchaCentral.com to listen live or downloaded Wednesday across podcast platforms. Wednesday nights live on Facebook, it's Spanish show La Mesa de los Margaros, giving you both the news and the chisme from around the Lucha world. This week... CMLL photographer Alexis Salazar will be stopping by to talk Lucha Dynasties, the media, and more. Thursdays, it's straight out of the bodega with Papo Esco. First, if you missed last week's interview with AEW star Jungle Boy Jack Perry, you owe it to yourself to go back and listen to it now. This week, the Lucha homies pull up to the podcast to talk Lucha Libre training, 
Wrestling Society X, Lucha Underground, and more. On Friday, it's your double dose of Lucha Central weekly podcast. One in English, y el otro en Español. This week, both shows dive into the question of if Vince McMahon's comparing of Angel Garza to Eddie Guerrero is going to be a good or a bad thing. The empty arena lucha shows that have taken place in the last week and more. Be sure to subscribe and follow all of your favorite Lucha Central Network series on your favorite podcast platforms. And please be sure to give a rating and review to help more fans find the shows that you love. For now, this is Denise Salcedo signing off from Lucha Central Central. Have a great week. Yeah, well, so first of all, I'm very protective. Um, I'm very protective over myself, and I'm also protective over the idea that somebody else is making money off of me, which um, which I know is the reality of it. But it, it, it at the heart of it, it really makes me upset um, due to my years and years of killing my body for somebody to then just walk in and make money off me. So that is always something that I will come into a deal with uh, with my hands up, it, totally in the guard position. Um, just because I feel whoever's going to make this money off me hasn't taken a bump nor, uh, you know, thousands, maybe a million bumps that I have to ruin my body and what it's going to feel like in a couple of years. So, um, when people come to me with these kind of deals, uh, I, you know, my gut instinct always is no first. And then I really have to be sold on it. And I, and usually what, what, what I have to be sold on is the idea that I myself wouldn't be able to do this in any form or fashion. So I need this other person. So, uh, and, and I wouldn't be able to, to make that kind of money. So, um, that wouldn't be a possibility. So that's always something I'm looking at. Um, and you talked about getting 37 cents from Walmart. You know, there was a time, like, so when I started my podcast in 2010, there was a time for probably 2011 to 2014 where I was the hottest I had ever been in my career. Um, you know, and I think I was making more money than a lot of the WWE wrestlers at that point. And, and also in merchandise specifically, because I had this show that was very popular. And um, although at that point, podcasting advertisement hasn't become what it is today. Uh, you know, I was strictly saying my show was supported by the fans. And I think people really got into my journey. The idea that I kind of um, basically wasn't really given a fair shot in WWE and thrown to the curb that uh, fans wanted to support me. And that's kind of the whole model of, I think the whole independent movement was. And, and I was, you know, I, I really championed it from the beginning, maybe before anybody else was really doing that was, Hey, you have an opportunity to support me to make a living as opposed to independent wrestlers going, I, I need to get practice so I can go to the WWE so they can support me. And essentially, yeah, I wasn't moving as many units as um, the Miz, but the Miz was making 60 cents a shirt or even that. And I was making $18 a shirt on the idea, you know, that I had cut a deal at this point with one hour tees where I was selling them advertising and they were giving me either free t-shirts or, you know, an unbelievable discount on t-shirts. And then I was moving them for whatever they were. And, and because the units were so high, uh, and, and not as high as WWE, but they were high for an independent wrestler. Um, you know, it was a big profit margin and it was, you know, very successful. And that, that's kind of obviously what led in the pro wrestling tees, but, um, at, at a, uh, being, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, stubborn with money and very, you know, almost cheap, obviously. Um, and so uh, my profit margin usually is, is I don't or my, I don't want to put 
I try not to put over $3 into it to make $10, if that makes sense. So I kind of want to stop at at three to 10 is usually my ratio. Um, If it's a little bit over, you know, I'll think about the success of it. But I always found it weird when people would were willing to buy mass amounts of things for $6.50 to sell for $10, where I just felt it was such a risk because there's so many times where I've just sat on stuff and then the last thing I want to do is lose money. It's, you know, it's the last thing I want to do, especially in, and I go back to the idea of I'm trying to, you know, pay my rent, I'm trying to pay my health insurance and to lose money, you know, while killing myself is um, it, it was always such a, a deterrent to me. So um, that was always my deal was how can I make this myself? How can I do it for cheap? Uh, and, but how can I still make a good product? An example with, like that is, um, you know, I've made, I, I made my own headbands for so many years and essentially I would, you know, I got quoted, I, I work, I wear these Cabanorama headbands, uh, as a tribute to Mark Rocco for so many years now, and not only to wear them as a tribute to Mark Rocco, but obviously when I started wearing them, I saw it as a marketing opportunity is that this is something, uh, that I could take on the road and that I could sell. And, you know, I think, you know, if I, if a headband would go for $10. I think one of the first quotes was $5. And then I kind of started looking into everything and I realized, you know, I know how to sew. I taught myself how to sew at, at an early age within my wrestling career, a, because I didn't want to pay for wrestling gear uh, because I knew it was something I'd pay for for the rest of my life. And B uh, I didn't want to be subservient to anybody who was making my gear. And there's so many horror stories of gear makers out there where I just started doing it on myself. And that's kind of a theme of my career is doing it myself. So I would go to the store and I would buy the fabric and I would wait for the coupons. So the fabric was cheaper because I knew if I can get 16 headbands out of one yard uh, and if a yard was, you know, $19, I would wait for the coupon. So it was $9. And now all of a sudden, you know, 16 divided by nine, that's my price. And then, uh, you know, a, a way to, uh, you know, to get the cabanorama on and you find just cheap variations. Uh, there was a time where I had, I used to sell these trucker shirts. I don't know if you remember those, Kevin. Uh, like bowling, the, bowling shirts. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. The bowling shirts. Yep. Yeah. It's a, it's a professional wrestler on one side and, um, Colt, you know, Colt, I think it said the name tag was Colt. It's a, um, the, the and, patch, like the, like the worker patches. Right. Yeah. And so essentially I found, I found a guy in Chicago named Augie and Augie worked for Cintas and he would basically sell me the old, the old, um, Cintas shirts off the back of a truck. We'd meet on Western and Armitage you know, every six months and he would sell me the shirts for 25 cents each, you know, and uh, then I was able to buy the patches and then I would sew the patches on. And, you know, I think all into it I had for that shirt was about, you know, $2 and 80 cents and I'd move those for $20 and I'd move them all day, you know, but there was the idea of like, I had to sew those patches on one at a time and that's labor intensive, but I'm willing. And so, you know, the labor is also in making those, um, those headbands, but I'm willing do that work for the profit a, because as wrestlers, we're only working on the weekends. So I'm, you know, and I'm, this is my full-time job. My only job during the weekdays was to work out. And so I, you know, I always felt a little guilty. I felt, you know, while a lot of wrestlers just waited for their bookings to come, I felt like there was work to do. I just need to find the work. And this was a way for me to work during the week was kind of putting it into my own merchandise. When I think you also, you kind of hit on that, you know, one of the things I think that that you were absolutely known for was that DIY spirit, Um, you know, from the merchandising to the podcast to the, you know, I I think, you know, you're right. And I haven't thought about that lately, but 
when you launched the podcast after your WWE run, it really was a let's support this guy that we know got a raw deal. And you you would present it in such a way on the show about the merchandising, which was never a hard sell. It was, hey, listen, if you got a few bucks, I've got some stuff you might be interested in. Maybe buy something. Um, and I, I know I bought uh, at least one shirt. And I think that that was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was never focused. Um, but it was really, you had built this community of people that wanted to support you. Um, and so that was, that was, I mean, it, after all, none of this officially licensed, no, there aren't people like me who be in the business of selling officially licensed merchandise. If there aren't these rabid fan bases for people that want to support these wrestlers. Um, and I think that on this independent level, and I think it also carries over a lot to the luchadors that we, that we represent is that, you know, people know that they're not part of the machine or they've been, you know, maybe not treated fairly by the machine uh, or the machine's not there for them. And so there is this kind of groundswell of, of a fan base that wants to, wants to buy, wants to support. And if you give them something that, that, other people aren't giving them, then there's a better opportunity to connect and make that sale. And I, that was always very powerful for me. And, you know, the, my technique of saying like, Hey, you know, not pushing hard, you know, is a, is a technique in itself. You know, it is very true as uh, I wanted, I, I was happy to do it for free and every purchase was fun for me. Um, but also, uh, you know, every time I said, you know, every, I wanted the fans to know that that when you spend twenty dollars, it doesn't go to anybody else but me. And I thought that was so important. Uh, you know, that's the way I feel when I give to charities. Uh, sometimes it's very hard for me to give to charities because it's hard to pick out like, is this going to somebody's salary? You know, is this going mm -hmm. to do something? Like, I want to go. I want it to go directly to the person who is in need, and I want all of it to go to them. Um, and so. I made it very astute that when you pay $20, this isn't going to anybody else. This is going to me. Um, and I did that by telling people that I shipped from my home, which I did. You know, I made it very apparent that I was moving my own. I was packing my own stuff. When you got a package, it was directly from my, uh, you know, hard work. And if we were at a show, every time they gave me money, I looked every fan in the eye and I told them, thank you so much for supporting me. Uh, because I I meant it and I wanted them to know that it uh, because I know how hard it is to let go of a twenty dollar bill you know uh, some people value money a little differently than me but I, you know there's something special about knowing that it's going to somebody trying to live their dream who was kind of shafted a little bit by the system and they're finding a different way to do it and so again it goes back to me thinking if I was a fan and there's nothing I love better than going to a comedy show or going to an indie show and giving money directly to the artist. There's, I, I think it's so powerful. And that was something that I hadn't seen in wrestling to the extent that I wanted to see it. And that was something that I thought was very important to bring to the scene. When you started kind of expanding the merchandise and doing the podcast, were you finding that you were getting more of your business Direct, cause you, you were wrestling at least three times a week normally, right? Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, you were doing these international tours. Were you finding more of your revenue coming from the direct sales at events or 
was the internet sales starting to kind of overlap that? Where did that kind of change happen for you? Yeah. So, I mean, the, it all scratched every, everything's back. You know, it was such a wonderful, like perfect circle of movement. So I start, you know, with the, with the popularity of the podcast online, you know, before, so I was pretty early in the idea of getting a, a website called coltmerch.com where people can buy directly from me. And, you know, later it's something that uh, the young bucks did. And, you know, you know, uh, you know, I know Kurt Hawkins has one now and having a site where you can directly get everybody's stuff. Of course, once pro wrestling tees came out, that kind of everyone just gave up on doing it themselves and allowed, a, you know, Ryan Barkin to do it. But I've always loved the idea of, you know, there's a place. And before before coltmerch.com, it was MySpace. And there was a lot of wrestlers on MySpace because MySpace allowed you to put up a PayPal link. So, you know, specifically, I remember Claudio, uh, who's now Cesaro, uh, he, him and Chris Hero were two guys who were very, um, again, wrestlers who were only doing wrestling for a living. And this is how we make a living. So we need to monetize as much as we can. They were doing PayPal on MySpace. But once MySpace was gone, Facebook wouldn't allow you to do PayPal. So I wanted a website, uh, you know, that allowed me to sell my stuff online. And I always thought to myself, and again, the, the model of pro wrestling tees is, is the same is I go to these shows, I make these sales, but people in Montana aren't able to go to these shows. I want them to be able to get the same merch that, uh, that the fans that go to the independent, the cool independent wrestling shows, I want them to be able to get the same thing. So once that started, um, and the podcast got by very popular, I was starting to get a lot of online orders, so many orders. It was so cool, but even if, you know, let's say I would get 30 orders a day or, you know, 50 orders in a week or whatever that is, that's such a process it, that looks like a lot. And it's such a process. But if I went to a show and because I was so popular, let's say I went to a show, let's say I went to ECCW in Vancouver at the Commodore and I hadn't been to Vancouver and, you know, I've never been to Vancouver. And now, um, you know, everyone's listening to the podcast. So then I say at the end, like, go to the show, I'll be there. The next thing you know, uh, you know, maybe in 2003, I would have four or five people come up, but now I've got a line of 50, 60 people, you know, and they're all looking around and, and they're all, you know, buying this and that, and they love the experience of talking to me. So, um, you know, let's say I did three shows, I'm doing 50, 60 people a night. That's 180 people. Whereas, you know, in a week I would do maybe 50 orders, which sounds amazing. But when you go to that live show and you're a popular act, uh, the lines start moving and just, all, man, I was just, you know, I, my duffel bags that I was buying were getting bigger and bigger and I was moving shirts. And again, this, again, this is before the wrestlers started flooding the wrestling table. So I was the only one, uh, you know, maybe that maybe the wrestling company had a t-shirt and a DVD. And then otherwise it was literally just me and maybe a couple of wrestlers, but you know, my popularity was a little higher than the other wrestlers. So it was just me and, and I was moving. So, um, although online was great, the live show still was, was just the best. And then it all changed because, uh, and, and not to say that live shows aren't great and that you're not still selling a lot of merch at live shows when, you know, hopefully COVID is over and we can get back to it, but you, knew already Ryan Barkin because he was doing shirts for you. But, um, you know, I, I've said this before. I was on the, the Pro Wrestling Tees PWT cast not that long ago. I've said it many times. Um, I think that Pro Wrestling Tees is probably the single most 
important innovation happening, whatever you want to call it, for the entire wrestling industry as a whole in the last 20 years, if not ever. Um, because what Pro Wrestling Tees did, and we'll talk about it for those that aren't familiar with it, but it took a number of people, and you were already past this point of, you know, you were making a living as a pro wrestler, but there was a whole uh, bunch, I'll put it as bunch, I don't know exactly how many it was, but certainly a number of friends of mine who were barely scraping by just on the paydays from the wrestling shows on the weekends. But once Pro Wrestling Tees hit, and once they had a way to sell merchandise across the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and a system that was automatically creating more and more awareness because as more and more wrestlers joined, and eventually you had the Steve Austins and, and uh, Ric Flair's joining as well, it became this unbelievable platform where you could make double, triple, quadruple, maybe more what you were making at the time just from sitting back and watching your merchandise sales. Now you would have to promote them, of course, but gone were having to come up with the overhead for merchandise. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead. I guess so. T- take me, take me back, take us back to you were getting your own shirts done at a place called one hour tees in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. And at some point, either you or Ryan has the idea of what if we did this for more than Colt Cabana? So kind of walk me a little bit through that story. Yeah. You know, um, Oh, let's, well, so yeah, I was getting my t-shirts done from Ryan. Um, and then, you know, he had started sponsoring my podcast and I would send people the one hour tees, you know, in, in exchange for t-shirts and he was watching the way I was doing business and I was constantly going over there and picking up more shirts because again, that was, one of the hottest points of my career and shirts were just flying. So I'd pick up a batch of a hundred and then the next week I'd have to pick up another batch of a hundred. Um, and then eventually, you know, I, I started, I mean, this is how wrestling works is, uh, and I talked about it with the gear that if there's a gear maker and they're good, everyone wants to go to that person because they're reliable and everybody in wrestling fizzles out. It's just, that's the way it is, is that the demand gets to be too much. And then, um, the person just can't take it anymore and they fizzle out. So everyone always needed someone to get shirts from. And I was like, I got a guy, he's great. He's got a shop that, you know, he's got employees. So, you know, because usually it was some guy in his basement with a screen. Um, what are those called? A screen, uh, printer, yeah, or, yeah, a silk um, screen press, a yeah. silk screener. Yeah. Yeah. Usually it was a guy with a silk screener, um, or a girl with a silk screener, but, uh, this was a guy with a shop and he was used to doing large orders and he wanted large orders. So, you know, slowly but surely, you know, I put Joey Ryan, Joey Ryan started getting his shirts from Ryan. Uh, the Bucks started getting his shirts from Ryan. Kevin started getting his shirts from Ryan. And Ryan came to me and said, you know, I want it. I have this idea of um, on demand. And um, and he's like, I need you, you know, like this doesn't happen if you don't tell your friends or ask your friends. And so from there, there was a first email that I sent out. Uh, Chuck Taylor just the other day told me he still has that text of that mass text, you know, (laughs) of the wrestlers that were on that text. And um, that's kind of where it started is I, you know, I, I put this out to everyone. Now, the thing is, is that I, although I was on pro wrestling tees, this model wasn't the perfect model for me. And so I kept Colt merch because I had been moving, I'd been pushing people towards that uh, on my podcast 
It was very successful. I was a person who was motivated and wanted to ship and sell and wanted the most maximum profits I could get. Now, my brain, again, works so differently from a lot of wrestlers where wrestlers are, oh, there's so many wrestlers who are so lazy and, you know, the idea of um, they could do all the work and make, you know, uh, $13 profit or someone else can do all, all of the work and they'll make an $8 profit, they'll take the $8, whereas I'll take the $13. Um, but there were so many wrestlers out there who would do the $8 profit or whatever it is, basically someone else to do the work is that was the success and it started moving. Now, the genius of this, there's so many different geniuses of it. And I knew this right away. And Ryan and I, I remember Ryan and I talking about it is that zero advertising would had to be done because if you wanted to move shirts, you had to promote it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the advertising is essentially done by the, by the clients and um, that was the genius of it. And so if we could get, you know, Jim Ross and Steve Austin and, you know, even myself who probably had 100,000 Twitter followers at that point, uh, you know, to pay for 100,000 Twitter followers, someone to post is a lot of money. And now all of a sudden they're doing it, you know, three, four times a week if they want to see shirts moving. And when shirts started moving, they realized the value in promoting it on their socials. And, and that was really the genius of Pro Wrestling Tees um, from the beginning. Now, you know, the genius moving on forward is obviously Ryan Barkin and the way that he hustles and um, his business mind and, um, and also him being a graphic design person and also a website design person and having those backgrounds and being a creative type uh, has also helped because if you didn't have that stuff, then um, you know, the machine couldn't work. So again, he's also the perfect circle and, and the perfect person to kind of be running that business. Yeah. You know, just, just so many things that hit on here, but one of them, your comparison of the, you know, $8 profit or $13 profit and you know which model you want to go with, you know, for, for me, from where I sit, you know, we, we do it all right. So we do pro wrestling tees. We have an Amazon store. We have, licensed product that is in retail or going into retail. And the way I look at it is that they're each kind of serves a different purpose. Um, and you know, like our, our, our Amazon percentage might not be the same as the percentage that we get at progress and tees, but I know that there's a lot of people out there where Amazon's their, their main choice of how they're going to go and they're going to buy products. They like the free shipping that they get from Amazon prime. So they're going to go. And if they look up Penta, or Pentagon Jr. and there's not a t-shirt on there, they're probably either going to go buy a bootleg one or they're not going to buy a Penta shirt. So we have stuff up there. But what, what really changed for us and why we really don't do any of our own direct uh, silk screening anymore at luchashop.com and we kind of just focus on pro wrestling tees for that stuff is the overhead just becomes ridiculous. And I guess, you know, we're not dealing with just one person. We're dealing with a dozen talents at a time, maybe more. But, you know, you have to figure out sizes and you have to figure out small, mediums and larges. And then at the end of the month of the year, we're left with all this inventory that we don't know what the hell to do with. And so the, for us, that was one of the main reasons that we kind of went all in with, uh, with Pro Wrestling Tees for our direct stuff. And every now and then, we'll still do something. We, um, we launched... Uh, our on our Lucha Central site that we recently relaunched, um, which is a news, basically the only bilingual 
Lucha News site where you can get videos and your all your daily Lucha News. But we wanted to do a shop there that was going to be different. And so for that, we do monthly capsule collections with Lapel Yeah, where we're doing a soccer jersey or shorts or uh, different things that you're not necessarily going to find at a Pro Wrestling Tees or, or anywhere else. But then that, that Pro Wrestling Tees model really it changed a it changed a lot. Um, yeah, and, it's been and really for me, cool. you know, and for me again, I was um, I, I was four minutes away from the shop, so I didn't mind get it. You know, that was the difference between also, but and, and a reason why I never left Chicago, especially in that decade, was, I you know I could say, hey, I need six mediums for this weekend, and I'd have them in you know I'd have them in an hour, one hour tease. So uh, it was a different scenario for me in where I could literally just drive four minutes to the shop and pick up whatever shirts I needed. And like I say in the documentary on YouTube is Ryan looks after the wrestlers first and foremost. It's very important that their business. And then obviously, you know, before the wrestlers, I, you know, I think he looks after Colt Cabana even most and foremost, uh, you know, so anything I needed, I would always get, and I would never ask for anything crazy, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily keep a huge stock because I always had the option of literally just going to the store. Now, also, it got to the point, Kevin, where I'm so DIY and hands-on is I learned how to print the shirt. So I would just go over there when nobody was at the shop, and and sometimes I would just print my own shirts, and I knew how to do that, and, you know, Ryan had taught me. And so, again, that was taking one step out of it, was just getting it done. I knew, you know, I could go over there, grab six medium whites off the shelf, uh, put them in the machine and, and start printing them myself. So that's a, 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 a little bit of the difference. And then also I want to touch on the idea of, uh, I understand of like Amazon and these other places, but uh, you know, I, as Colt Caban, I feel, uh, may, you know, maybe not now, but even still now I'm such a niche idea mm-hmm. that it, in my heart, it really was, man, if you know who Colt Caban is, you're going to find how to go to Colt merch and order directly And that way Colt can profit, you know, $16 instead of $3. Uh, And that's kind of how I felt on about our scene. Whereas, you know, you're promoting, and I don't want to speak for you, but you're promoting this grand idea of Lucha Libre, which is such a, a general idea uh, that, that people, right. Could just tag in like, or type in in Google, Oh, Lucha Libre t-shirt where I am this weird underground comedic, um, podcasting entrepreneur that if you know, you know, and so then if you know, you should be able to find that, which might not be the best uh, marketing strategy, but that's kind of always how my heart felt. Well, and I get, well, and I do look, there's something to be said for not diluting the brand, right? You, you, there becomes a point where if you want to, or if you're, if you have found success by being this underground product and persona and people have, wanted to support you because you have been this underground persona and it has been DIY and it has been every penny goes to cult. There are some deals that are going to come along where it's just going to feel too mass and you don't want to, you know, put yourself in that position of, Oh, you know, did cult sell out? Is he, is he changing? Is he, you know? Uh, so I, I think that that definitely makes sense. And I think too, yeah, I think the, the, the difference, one of the differences just going back to my own personal philosophy with Amazon is there's a there piracy in Lucha Libre. They just go hand in hand, even more so than any other type of wrestling, um, because 
bootlegging is just part of the culture of Mexico. I mean, you know, these guys go to wrestle at an arena and people are selling their masks outside of the arena and it's just accepted as part of the culture. And that's a whole nother kind of uh, issue to deal with. But so by being on Amazon, we can at least protect the IP of the wrestlers that we represent. If we put up legitimate Penta shirts, it enables us to go and take down all the bootleg ones. Whereas opposed to there's a ton of bootleg Santo and Fishman and talents that we don't represent. We can't do anything about that on Amazon. So it's a, it, it, it's a multi, I guess, faceted approach to, to yes. doing the, those things. But um, which I, I know, to, which I know Ryan at one hour tees spent a lot of time, you know, fish surfing the internet and making sure that people who are on pro wrestling tees that, that if someone else is illegally doing it, that they are taken down and shut down. So I understand it's a big part of the business. Yeah. I, uh, Ryan, it's funny. I actually got a text from Ryan while we were recording this, but, um, uh, even just last weekend, Ryan sent me a text with a image and said, you know, can you believe these guys are bootlegging this again? I'm gonna have to put together a lawsuit. And it, it, it's really good that he is so proactive in, you know, protecting not only his IP, but the, the talent IP. Um, because it's, it's, it's hard out there because, you know, there's all these sites that make bootlegging so easy, the Teesprings and the, all, all these sites where they put the onus on the IP owner to prove that they own the IP, not the person that's uploading the art. And it's ridiculous. So if I, I can put up a Colt Cabana shirt tomorrow if I want it. And if you went and you told Teespring that you wanted to have it taken down, they would say, okay, show me your trademark, show me your copyright. Otherwise, we're not going to take down this guy's shirt. And it's, it's, it's a really ugly world out there and so to have not only the pre- the pwt site where everyone knows everything is legit uh but then to have you know ryan working on enforcing the ip as well is uh yeah it's it's a it's a huge benefit to you know to the talents um i wanted to talk real quick about another kind of piece of merchandise that you did which was again maybe not the first person to do it but certainly kind of in this modern era the first one to really do it and that was your children's book that you wrote and released. Um, how did, how did that come about? And, um, you know, talk me through that a little bit and are there plans for, for a follow-up to that? Sure. I I thought you were going to talk about something else, which I don't know if you're going to touch on, but, um, you know, the wrestling road diaries was such an important uh, part of my business model also. Um, but maybe we'll we'll get to that if you want, but yeah, I wrote a children's book. Um, yeah, I did it with my uh, basically my, one of my best friends. Is, his name is Sam Weiss. Uh, if you live in Libertyville, Illinois, and you need a dentist, uh, Sam Weiss at Libertyville Dental. His his wife is uh, Erica Weiss, and she runs. Um, she started her own uh, publishing company, and she's a children's book um, maker and illu- she's an illustrator. And so she kind of was like, "Would you like to make a children's book?" And I was like, "Yes." And uh, you know, let's go over the reasons why. Um, uh, I'm a sucker for little kids. I love little kids. I especially love little kids at wrestling shows. Uh, they're always just so cute. Like, you know, sometimes they grow up to be monsters, but when you're little, you're just like guaranteed to be so cute. And uh, the spirit <laughs> and, and, and just the feeling, you know, of a child, they're just so carefree. Um, God, not to sound like Michael Jackson there, but uh, <laughs> they're so cute. Uh, but anyways, um, so that was a, a reason why I would love to also, I, I kept on thinking of the idea uh, of my merchandise table at wrestling shows, a t-shirt, a DVD, a figure, um, but nobody had a wrestling, a children's book. And there were so many children there that 
not only would the, the fathers or the mothers of the children want to get it, but also if you go to a show, everyone knows someone with a child. So it's such a no brainer to be like, I should get this for that child, for my niece, for my nephew, for my neighbor, for my grandkids. And I was really finding that uh, as I was at the shows making those kind of sales. And, and also um, it was cool to, to do a book. I, you know, I always said with my podcast that that it's kind of my biography. That's my story. Uh, if you want to know it, you know, I, there's 10 years worth of archives. Um, so I never really wanted to write a book per se, but this was a different opportunity to write a book. And I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, for, for where I sit in Mass Republic, um, the kid space is something that we've been, I mean, as far back as 10 years now, we've been working on developing certain IPs for animation uh, and for really over the last, I'd say two years focused on publishing as well. And so we're still a few steps away from, uh, from any of these seeing the light of day, but um yeah, I think there's just there's such a huge untapped potential um, with the kids space and, you know, especially, you know, again, separate, separate entire uh, three hour podcast, probably at some point about why wrestling today isn't making new fans of kids. But um, I think that's really important. I think it's important for the parent or the grandparent to be able to pick up a wrestling related uh, book or piece of merchandise for a young one that might get them interested in what this wacky world of pro wrestling is all about because we're not making young fans like we used to. So, um, but let's, yeah, let's, let's bounce back. I, I, it's, we should certainly talk about wrestling road diaries. I think my, um, because my head has been out of the actual kind of media home entertainment, uh, space for a while and focused on other types of merchandising, I wasn't even really thinking about that, but that was a huge, a huge game changer for you and opened a lot of people's eyes to you both as a performer and as a personality. And again, kind of giving people that look into who you were and having people then care and want to support you. So why don't you, uh, yeah, walk us a little bit through about that and how that piece of merchandise really did great for you. Yeah. Well, there's, there's so many reasons why I started my podcast, uh, so many, but one of them was, is that I knew I was coming out with this documentary that I thought was unlike anything else. I knew in the documentary was starring not only myself, but uh, Daniel Bryan, who had just signed and became a big star within the WWE. So I knew that, um, you know, it, it maybe if it wasn't my popularity, his popularity would also help this thing thrive. Um, and I, I knew, um, I, I knew I didn't want to have to depend on somebody else to go on their podcast to help sell this thing. And I just kept on saying, like, I don't want to depend on somebody else. Uh, and then I, I just kept on thinking to myself, like, if I had my own podcast, I would be able to promote it every single week. Uh, and, and that's how I would have to move. I wouldn't have to go on anybody else's podcast. I wouldn't have to call into a blog talk radio and sit on my couch. I remember so many times just sitting on a couch, talking to somebody who just seemed so uninterested in what I was saying. And so, um, so, to sell the diaries was an important part of starting the podcast. Uh, and then the podcast picked up steam and, you know, in 2011, I, I came out with it and that was the first time where I, I couldn't believe how many units I sold and how much I moved. And again, um, the profit margins on that were unbelievable because essentially I paid the wrestlers. I paid the, uh, Eric Santa Maria to, to edit it together. 
Um, you know, I, I put money into the travel and stuff, but, you know, we kept it kind of all as cheap as we could and we were getting paid to wrestle too. Uh, and then once I paid everything out, you know, it was all, you know, I had put it, everything in, so I was going to get everything back. And, you know, that was a whole process too, of trying to find the cheapest way to get DVDs at that time. And, um, and just the, my podcast was so popular and, and Brian was doing very well in WWE and I was doing very well and just, it was crazy. And, um, I wasn't smart enough to have, uh, stamps.com at that point. So I was literally filling out all these custom forms and I was walking over to the post office and Yolanda knew me by name. You know, I, she became my friend. I was, I was there every other day for probably four months at that point. Um, and, uh, and it was just so wild. And so that was a huge game changer. And also, you know, I always knew that was going to be something else to put on the the merchandise table was nobody else had a movie. Everyone had like a best of DVD that was kind of shitty. You know, it was their, their matches and YouTube was kind of coming along. So it's like everyone could just watch matches on YouTube, whereas no one had an actual movie. And, you know, I took the idea from the comedians of comedy, which was Brian Posehn and Patton Oswalt and Maria Bamford. Uh, I just loved the idea of watching the comedians travel on a lower level, on an alternative level. And so I knew that's what we were as wrestlers uh, was this alt you know, like we weren't these people. We didn't have like we didn't have car service. We were sleeping on friends' couches, and it hadn't been documented to the point I thought it should have been documented at that point. Um, you know, I'm sure some people did some stuff, but it's just the way that I thought it should be done. It hadn't been done, and so um, we put it out, and I put I put it out, and it was uh, just a home run and a game changer, and it really put it really uh, monetarily allowed me to kind of breathe for the first time in my life. Uh, you know, I was fired by WWE and I assumed I had to get a real job, but I was like, you know, I'll stick with wrestling and everything started coming around. And then, uh, once the movie came out, it just kind of put me in a whole different category, which was, which was amazing for just a, uh, a guy just trying to hustle, think, thinking that he could never make any real money because I was rejected by WWE and everyone knew in wrestling, that's where the money was. And so it was pretty wild that there was money, uh, elsewhere and that I had finally tapped into it. Yeah. And I think I, it was, it was kind of a, the right time for that. And I know, you know, go, this last decade now has not been very kind to, to making money off of media um, because of YouTube, because of so many different services that people can sign up for, for really cheap. Um, the ability to create content and get paid for it. Well, uh, it has really kind of taken a hit. Um, but I think that, like you said, focusing on the, the documentary side of it, making a film, um, you know, that's probably still one of, one of the few ways where there is money that could be made, um, I think, in terms of wrestling content and what else could be out there. Um, you know, we, we took a big step back from producing with an eye to digital media or pay-per-view or, or home entertainment because it became very difficult to make that profit. Um, we started focusing more on merchandising and on live events and, and things where you, you couldn't just, you know, find it on YouTube essentially, whether it was piracy or, or just a glut of content. So um, as you kind of look forward, do you see another potential documentary or film or anything like that? Uh, you know, down the road, are there other areas, um, whether I guess, you know, one of my, 
my, one of my last questions I was going to ask, I guess I could tie it into this, is are there still things that Colt Cabana wants to achieve in that merchandising space or untapped? And I'm not asking you to give me the secrets of what you think will be the next big thing, but, you know, are, are you are you done innovating or are there more innovation plans? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I'm never done innovating. Uh, you know, my brain just is always churning. It's whether the ideas are good or not, or whether I still have my finger on the pulse, you know. Uh, you know, at, at 29, I really had my finger on the pulse, especially in the podcasting world and, and just all these other things. You know, I think life experience allowed me to kind of be a little quicker than, uh, you know, I always said wrestling was about five years behind the times. And so, uh, you know, especially... I think 10 years ago they were. And, you know, I remember I, in 2010, uh, I had pitched a podcast series to WWE based off the success of my own. And they laughed at me and they, they told me that, you know, they were like, WWE is a, is a visual medium. You know, there's no point in the audio. And I just, I, they laughed at me, but I laughed at them because I just knew how stupid they sounded. Um, so, you know, eventually I'm sure something will come up. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, my, the Road Diary series has been very successful. I've done three of them. Each each one um, has gone down in profits, but they're still profitable. So I knew if I put a, another one, uh, I, I think, like you said, as people pay less and less for uh, contents and move, you know, uh, the good thing is that the Road Diaries are a collectible series. I feel, and so mm-hmm. people want to collect the DVDs and have all three of them. And and there's been talks in doing a fourth one, but. You know, it's got to, it's just got to be right. Who knows if it's going to be right. I'm in no rush to do it. Also, I have a little, uh, it's weird as a performer. I do have a bit of anxiety, social anxiety. So like, I really hate when the cameras are on me for that purpose, but I also love the business aspect of it. So I know how to turn it on and how to do it. But a lot of me just like, can't, when I film those, those movies, I can't wait till it's be over. So I could just not be around a camera. Um, and then moving forward. Yeah. You know, I, there's, of course, I can't, I can't wait for the next thing. You know, I'm, you know, right now, uh, I'll tell you, you know, I'm, I signed up for Twitch, uh, to, I don't play video games, but I just love the aspect that each time you go on, there's this potential to make a community on Twitch and to play games. And basically I, I want to, I want to mesh the world of comedy and wrestling. That's what, that's been my goal forever. Uh, I've always done it in different ways. You know, I do it. I feel the podcast is a way of that. Uh, I've done live comedy shows. I've gone to Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, Scotland every August. And so I think doing uh, almost like party games and weird things with wrestlers and comedians on Twitch, uh, to me, that excites me. You know, that's my, I I don't, I don't imagine it's going to be this multi-million dollar industry for myself, but it is something that excites me. And I've always only done stuff based on excitement, not on the idea of like, will this make me rich of some sort? So uh, you know, my friend was telling me of like, where do you see this in a year, like Twitch? And I was like, I'm not even, I don't even care. Like, I just want to have fun. I feel if you, if you think, if you think about in a year, I, you know, I always tell wrestlers, like you can't start wrestling school and go, you know, I hope in five years I'm in, in WrestleMania because it's, it's so low to happen. Now it does happen. You should thrive for it. But if you don't get to WrestleMania, you're going to consider yourself a failure Whereas if your goal in wrestling school was, I can't wait till I have my first match. Uh, and then you achieve that goal. Well, then you hit that endorphin of success and it makes you stronger and it will make you move forward. And so I feel the same way in whatever endeavor it is. Uh, you know, when we started pro wrestling tees, we weren't going to say, you know, neither Ryan nor me, you know, said, uh, you know, we won't be happy until we make 
the wrestlers, you know, two million dollars in profits, which you know I think we have or whatever. You know, basically oh, well, we were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I remember Ryan. You know, he it said in the documentary too. He's like, if we can, if a wrestler can sell one shirt every day, you know, that would be the best. And so I always that's what I say to myself going into anything is I keep my expectations low in order to hit this endorphin of achievement. And so um, that's what I'll do with whatever I do moving forward. That makes a lot of sense. And then obviously now you have signed, I think officially right with AEW. Uh, yeah. Oh. All Elite Wrestling, which is the the hot new kid on the block um, for those listening that aren't from the wrestling space. Um, and so it's been great to see you on television every uh, every Wednesday night. Um, and I I know that that I, and again I don't I don't want you to speak out of turn if there are certain things you can or can't speak about at this point. But um, you know uh, AEW does a ton of merchandising through pro wrestling tees, and they have their shirts and they have their uh, you know pins and and other things on a pro but they're also doing a line of action figures coming out through wicked cool toys. Um, and they're obviously going to be looking at expanding into other areas. Um, there's you know, word of a video game and other things. So now that you're with AEW, uh, does that restrict you at all in what you're going to be able to do on your own? And is it just AEW focus at this point, or is there, is there still some leeway for you to, do Colt Cabana merchandise outside of that. Yeah. I'd have to look over my contract again, but I know this is something that we talked about and it is, you know, I have the right to sell anything Colt Cabana. That's my IP. That's my, you know, I came up with that. I've grown that brand for 20 years now, over 20 years. And so, uh, you know, I just don't have the right to sell anything with uh, Colt Cabana and the AEW um, brand also. So anything they came up with or any design they came up with, with the logo, you know, I can't sell that, but uh, I, of course I still, you know, but for me right now, it's almost like a half and half situation is uh, I want to grow myself in, in AEW and I want to show them my value. And then, you know, it, it's weird because I want to sell stuff for myself, you know, to keep those profit margins high. But then I also want to make sure I sell stuff for AEW that they see the value they get within signing me. And it's important that I move big numbers. So, you know, the execs there are like, this was a good uh, signing. You know, we're happy with him. He moves the needle and he's an important part of our business. Uh, and that's the way I continue wrestling and performing and, you know, keep on extending a contract with AEW. So it's a fine balance. Uh, you know, obviously in my head, I'm always trying to help my, my business, whatever it might be. But um, the part of signing this contract is saying to myself, like, now it's time to be loyal to someone else and try to help their business also. And I'm very invested in that. And it's very important for me to help the AEW business as much as they're going to help my business. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, like, that's a great way to, to look at it. And I think that, you know, uh, we represent master public. I represent Penton Phoenix as their, as their business manager. And so I was able to negotiate their AEW contract for them. And I've told a couple other people, I don't really think I've talked about this publicly yet, but the night and day dealing with AEW, their lawyers, their understanding of wrestler IP versus when we had to do that for talent with Lucha Underground was so unbelievable because like what you just said, right? Colt Cabana, I created the IP, it's my IP, and I can't do anything with AEW, but you've had these these 
other entities come along, especially when they come from outside the wrestling business, whether it was Lucha Underground or whether it was even the first contract that MTV lawyers gave me that they wanted me to give the Wrestling Society X uh, roster. And I was like, we need to change this roster first. But um, where they just go, oh, you're coming to work for me. We're going to own you. You know, your IP is our IP and you can't do anything with it. And so it's been really refreshing uh, to see AEW create this kind of best of both worlds for some of the talent where AEW is this machine now and talent can, you know, uh, be part of that machine and put their all into that machine and grow with the machine. But also there is that preserved sanctity of an IP that you came in with. So um, I have, I have nothing but good things to say about the uh, AEW legal team that I've dealt with. And I'm sure the, uh, you know, all the entities uh, and the ownership side. Yeah, and you got to understand the heart of AEW is the heart of you know of this movement. And you know, you know, I started something essentially. I mean, I started in '99 when I, you know, when I was doing it. But you know, when I got fired in 2010, and I started this own DIY movement, like you know, I really started something special, I think. And then you know, not only do I like to say that you know, I kind of you know lit the torch for the young bucks and passed it on, and they they flew right by me, and and you know the way that I was moving merch and then to watch the way how popular they got and were moving merch um, and the connection with the crowd and the connection with real connections with fans, and, you know, and essentially it, it, on that movement is why AEW started. And so uh, I don't think AEW has forgotten that, even though it's kind of young as a company, but you know, hopefully they always remember that. And so it is about this idea that like, it's, not, you know, although it is a corporation, you know, it is built on, it's built on the idea of this DIY movement. And, uh, you know, that's why I think everyone's so friendly and open about letting wrestlers be happy about what they're getting themselves into. And I believe that too, as an employer and employee um, relationship is that the happier your employees are, the more they want to do to help the company grow. Like, I I just think it's so weird for, uh, for bosses and whoever and companies to intimidate their employee Whereas opposed to um, just this wonderful relationship where where you love the company you work for so much, you can't, all you want to do is help them grow because it's just such a fun place to be and, you, and you're rooting for their success as opposed to being scared and just being job scared and, and working hard just so you make sure you have a job. Yeah, well, it, it makes all the sense in the world. And that's why I think that uh, it's great that they've come along both as another major place for talent to make a living uh, and, and be part of. But I think it really, you know, it, I see it as a as huge boom to the industry, um, especially because now hopefully we're going to start to get more of those new 18 to 34 year old fans that, that WWE hasn't been getting, that hopefully get some younger fans, hopefully kind of really refresh uh the industry with uh with some additional opportunities um for the fandom and for and for the talent colt i want to thank you so much for coming on and talking all of this with me um before we get out of here please let everybody know where exactly they can find you uh dot and beyond uh yeah twitter and instagram tiktok and twitch is all at colt cabana um, and then, yeah, you know, coltmerch.com essentially is where you could just find all that stuff that I have. Uh, you know, I think the movies are a fun place to start and, uh, that'll lead you to dig- to digitally downloading them too. And then, um, God, you know, you can't, you can't come to a show and see me really. Uh, but you can watch me on Wednesday nights on dynamite 
on TNT for All Elite Wrestling. Thank you so much for once again joining me on Business of the Business. I hope you enjoyed this inside look at the thinking behind and the advancements in, I guess we can call that, uh, independent wrestling merchandising over the last number of years. Much of it uh, spearheaded by or first to marketed by Colt Cabana. My pattern on this show is going to be to try to kind of go back and forth uh, episode by episode. Somebody who is more directly related to the professional wrestling or Lucha Libre industries and then somebody who is not necessarily known for that but has their foot inside the business in some manner. In the first two episodes that dropped, we talked with artist, designer, illustrator Jeff Everett about not only his work with WWE, Master Public, and other professional wrestling industry-related entities, but about his work for the federal government, for the Pope, for a number of bands that you would have heard of, and some that you would not have. And in the next episode, I'm going to be speaking with Boss Fight Studio, a very hot up-and-coming toy company, collectibles company, where the principles all came from Hasbro, and they are making our brand new Legends of Lucha Libre action figures and collectibles that we'll start to release later this year. Uh, But Eric's got a fascinating background between going to college for sequential art, going to work for Hasbro, and working on the biggest and most classic Hasbro toy lines like G.I. Joe and Transformers. So next episode, I will be very excited to sit down and talk with Eric Aranya about his career as a toy, collectibles, executive, and designer right here on Business of the Business. But until next time, be safe, be well, and I'll see you soon. If you're listening to this and you haven't visited LuchaCentral.com, it's time to do it. LuchaCentral.com is the online home for Lucha Libre, where you can get all of the top news in English and in Spanish. Find the best curated video content and original content not seen anywhere else. Find when Lucha Libre events would be happening in your area. Find photo galleries from top photographers covering Lucha Libre around the world. From weekly polls to annual awards. Seen and read by top executives in all of the major Lucha Libre promotions across the globe. And on top of that, it's free. LuchaCentral.com, your centralized place for all things Lucha Libre.